Your plane glides quietly through the night sky. The, the lights are low. The chatter of conversations has fallen into a hypnotic silence. When you turn your attention to the window, you can't believe your eyes. There, staring back at you is the ghostly face of what appears to be an airline captain. Silent, cold, gray. Your breath catches in your throat as you want to scream, but you cannot. And just like that, he's gone. This sounds like something straight out of a Hollywood blockbuster, but it happened. And on more than just one occasion, and in front of multiple eyewitnesses. Imagine you're working a fishing schooner as a patch of rough weather blows in, causing chaos all around you. Boats begin to collide with other boats. Screams of overboard sailors break through the sounds of the squalls and waves, bashing your hull without mercy. And when you're certain that you will be joining the fate of the other crews, the weather relents. The seas calm, and for a moment you feel safe. That is, until a ghostly crew begins to board your ship. Then you see you're not the only one to witness this insane moment play out before your very eyes. Is this just another Hollywood horror story? No. It's a very real story from Mariner's past. Maybe your ground crew is part of an ongoing air exercise when suddenly and without warning, your crew, your fellow military friends, apparently vanish off the face of the earth. These are the voyages of the damned. Joining me to discuss these supernatural tales of wonder, Steve Shippey, Jeff Belanger, Ray Auger, and a special guest. So batten down the hatches, put on your seatbelts, and for the love of God, keep your arms and legs inside the podcast at all times. This is about to get weird. Here on the Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader. I'm not going to stand here and listen to this baloney. He won't float. He doesn't stand for baloney. It is one of the greatest supernatural mysteries in U.S. history. In December of 1972, Eastern Airline Flight 401 crashed into the Florida Everglades, killing over 100 souls. Soon after, ghosts from Flight 401 began to haunt the land and other airplanes. In an all-new Shock Doc special for the first time ever and... On the 50th anniversary of the crash, paranormal investigator Steve Shippey and psychic medium Cindy Kaza attempt to make the ultimate contact. It is one of the greatest supernatural mysteries of all time. On December 29th, 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 crashed into the Florida Everglades. 101 souls lost their lives. But that was just the beginning. Soon after, 
ghosts began to haunt the land and other planes. 50 years later, on the anniversary of the crash, for the first time ever, we will attempt to make contact with the ghosts of Flight 401. You said black. Box. Oh my God, there's something on the glass. Right now? Right now, it's touching your hand. They'd use these parts from the crash on different planes and find out the horrible truth about what happened that fateful night. I just keep hearing a woman who is screaming and screaming. They cannot get out. That is Ghosts of Flight 401. It's available now on Discovery+. Plus, and you may be able to find it on Travel Channel. Joining us, fellow investigator and supernatural researcher, Steve Shippey. Steve, it's always good to see you, man. Thanks for joining me tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Dave. Boy, I'll tell you, man, this, uh, this book, I've had this book for years. I remember this sitting on my mom's kitchen counter. And I remember looking at it, and I thought it was a novel at first, in the vein of Stephen King or Dean Koontz. And I asked her about it, and I remember her telling me the story. And then shortly after she talked to me about this case, there was a movie, a made-for-TV movie starring Ernest Borgnine, Kim Basinger. As a matter of fact, we now have that here on the Paranormal 60 YouTube page. You can go watch. I've got the entire movie up for you to check out, folks. But this story absolutely terrified me. The whole concept of this, uh, the, the idea that not only had this tragedy taken place and befallen all of these people, but that their souls would still be at, at unrest, that they would still be seeking some kind of communication. And, and at that point, I thought it was just one or two of the crew members that were reaching out. But Steve, there's so much more to the story. Yeah, there truly is. I, I completely agree. I mean, I heard about Flight 401 for years growing up. And, you know, it's one of those cases that really you know, sit with you. I mean, it was, you know, at the time it was the biggest airline tragedy in U.S. history. And uh, certainly, you know, growing up in uh, that kind of era and seeing these type of things on different shows and specials, it made you definitely not really want to fly. It's one of those things that kind of always, you know, mess with me to some degree. Now, to look at this case on the 50th anniversary, to go back into this area, which, first of all, insanely dangerous. It's in the middle of the Florida Everglades. So you've got giant pythons. You've got massive alligators, mosquitoes the size of hummingbirds. You have got everything going against you in this situation, but you decide that you're going to strike out. You guys are going to go investigate and look into this claim. What made you decide this story deserved a re-examination? Well, you know, Dave, kind of, you know, like you said, you know, coming up on the 50th anniversary, you know, and, and, and it was huge news, worldwide news at the time. And like you said, there was a major film and a made for TV film, I think a couple of different films, several different books. But I feel like after a set amount of time, the story kind of disappeared from the, you know, the thoughts of individuals, and but the reports of the activity you know, kept on coming forward. Uh, besides, of course, you know, I'm sure we'll get into uh, why some of the planes had the activity, but that site out there, the crash site deep in the Everglades, still to this day, uh, fishermen and people come forward and say that they hear screams out there at night, you know, they'll be in their airboat and then they kind of 
maneuver over there to see what's going on. Did somebody's boat break down? Did somebody need help? And there's nobody there. And that still continues to this day. You know, even apparitions and other things like that are seen out there. Annie Wal uh, Waters says the documentary is fantastic, Steve. Your work speaks for itself. Um, you go out there, you're, you're in this position. And like I said, we've spoken about, um, you know, on, on this show and in, in, uh, other incarnations of my programs about the case and about the, the crew members, but I never really thought to think about that area. And maybe, maybe part of the reason the story hits me is because I grew up in the Chicago land area and we had that horrendous plane crash in uh it was like the late 70s early 80s just miles from my home uh that killed hundreds of people and i remember talking to people in my area growing up a lot of them were the first responders they were the people that were out there and they said that they would see figures standing over the bodies and looking panicked and the minute that they would get there the person would just dissolve in front of them and then they would look down and that was the body of the person that they were standing in front of and that just i remember my heart just icing up in my chest hearing that and how terrified and, the, and they said they saw this in time after time and then i'd be like well, wait a minute did you know bob pluchinski and they're like no who's that and i'm like another one of the the responders no i didn't know bob uh, and that's the story Bob told me. And then years later, I'd hear another story, almost the identical thing. And this was just one after another. So the ground, the land there out by O'Hare field has always been considered probably very haunted. And I know there's been strange things, but in the Everglades, you're right. You're kind of out there in the middle of nothing. So a lot of it may be lost in, in that aspect of the history. I really have to applaud you to go back out to that location itself to try to make communication, to try to bring some peace and answer to these spirits. So well done for that, sir. Well, thank you. You know, Dave, and like you said earlier, I mean, it was um, super challenging. You know, I mean, the day that we went out there, uh, they mm -hmm. had a couple of the ranger individuals had, you know, wanted to make sure that the levee was safe. And they literally had removed a 22 foot python, uh, you know, from the levee. So you're out there at night. You know, you don't know where you're stepping when you're jumping off the airboat and into the sawgrass. There could be a gator right there. There could be a snake right there. That was kind of always a thing. You're kind of always looking around every time you hear the slightest bit of sound. Um, and even just the equipment, Dave, I mean, that the moisture from the Everglades, even though it wasn't raining whatsoever, you're just, when you're on that airboat going back, you, your gear, everything is soaking wet. Uh, yeah. Just, you know, yeah, from the humidity and such. Yuck, all the way around, right? Just uh, an amazing sadness to this. When you get there, you're not mediumistic, right? I mean, you bring Cindy out to, to work on that. But are you met with that same overwhelming sense of tragedy and loss when you're there? And if so, how do you differentiate that from just being human and feeling sorrow for the people that lost their lives or actually being something paranormal? Right. Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, you know, number one, you, you're, you're thinking about where you're going, you know, what's happened there. You know all the details. You've seen the footage. You've seen the, the photos of the disaster area. But even beyond that, medium, uh, no mediumship in me, so to speak, but you can feel it. You know, you certainly can. As soon as you get onto that levee, everything kind of changes. And there's kind of something that comes over you uh, besides kind of that residual residue feeling from you know that energy there's also a, a presence there 
as if, you know, you can feel eyes are on you at all times. That's one thing that really stood out to me, uh, just having that instinct that there are multiple energies here watching. And I've got to guess the Everglades are also probably pretty popular body dump grounds for the mob throughout history and, and other killings. So, I mean, that had to be overwhelming for Cindy to go out there because you've got the the cosmic scar of this tragedy. But then, as she said, there's a lot of death associated with this area. There's a lot that's gone on. Um, how hard was it for her to really kind of cut through all of that to get to Flight 401? Sure. Well, I mean, she began to pick up on things uh, almost immediately as we were getting, you know, honing in on the area. And you, you know how it is, Dave, when you're out in the Everglades, there's no clear path to where you're going. So there's a lot of zigzagging. To, you know, if you're going to go this way, you might have to go this way for so long. And, uh, you know, so I asked her at one point, we, we stopped the boat and I said, are you picking up on anything, any certain direction? We were headed this way and she points off this way. Right away, she kind of honed in on different energies. And as we were getting closer and closer, uh, you could tell she was flooded. Uh, you know, seeing so many different images of people, a woman screaming, a child, a man, it was just coming from, you know, from all angles. So I think it was um, overwhelming for her, you know, which, you know, naturally so. And like you brought up, you know, different deaths associated out there. And then to come to find out there was another disaster uh, within a mile of where we were. So how many mm -hmm. people there had lost their lives? All right. Now, the the high strangeness begins. I mean, it's tragically, it's not supernatural for the reason for this crash. It is error. It is uh, engineering issues, maybe not keeping up to code. Um, a light doesn't work, so they're not sure that the landing gear has gone down. So they decide to cycle around again to test and, and make sure the landing gear is down. But some somehow in all of this, they've actually deactivated the autopilot. So in the dark, and people think you, the pilots can see through the window. Look out your window at night, flying in the dark, folks. Without a city below you, over water, whatever, you can't see. You have no clue. And all of a sudden, the altimeter just begins to drop from where they thought they were safe at 2,000 feet, rapidly dropping, causing this crash, which then cartwheels them as this plane continues to blow up and and just spread itself so violent that one of the survivors that you talk to regains consciousness still strapped to his chair. The clothes have blown and burned off of his body. He's completely naked sitting in his chair, still strapped in, in the Everglades. Yeah. I can't even imagine you survive that the terror of, of being in that moment and seeing the devastation laid out before you. Uh, and, and I've got to guess that there were survivors that were drowning in front of a lot of these survivors, uh, probably be, being attacked by, uh, creatures from that area. Uh, it, it had to be truly the stuff of nightmares to have survived it. It's almost one of those things of, would you have been better off not making it through that? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it is sad. There were a lot of people that there would have been more survivors uh, mm. if you know they hadn't drowned in just even a few inches of water in some cases. Uh, they just happened to land with their chair face down, still strapped in. They were unconscious from the crash. Um, even beyond that, the jet fuel uh, was burning people severely. You know, all the jet mm. fuel had leaked out, so there was severe burns and, and long-lasting damage to some of the survivors. And even the soil, Dave, out there, 
uh, there's a there's a certain toxin. I forget right now exactly what it was called, but there was a certain toxin out in the Everglades that had gotten into people's skin, causing severe gangrene uh, amputations. And uh, in fact, one gentleman that survived had to be put into a certain kind of a pressure chamber and underwent some severe things just to get this out of his system so he could survive that. You know, if it oh, was like the hyperbolic chambers, right? Exactly. exactly. Right. Yeah. Unbelievable. Then where it gets, it gets strange. You have this American tragedy and you know, it's weird. There was what, like 176 people aboard this flight and around 70 people survived this thing, which seems remarkable. And to know that there would have been other survivors had they not landed face down in the water. Right. That to me seems like a miracle in itself that anybody survived that. Yeah. In, in that area. What was their explanation? How did they explain that that happened? I, I think, you know, how, what we can attribute to the survivors is, you know, as you said, you know, they were at 2000 feet, they were trying to fix the indicator light. And what the belief is, is that the captain had accidentally bumped the steering, the yoke, you know, the steering column that disengaged right. the autopilot. And it was such a gradual uh, descent that they had no idea that they were losing altitude until somebody had looked at the meter and realized they were a couple of hundred feet from the ground. And it was at that moment that the captain had tried to pull up and significantly did pull up and kind of thrusted to try to, you know, get up high enough. But I think that was just enough to kind of level out the plane a little bit more. So when it did hit, I think that is why more people, you know, were saved, at least, you know, if anything. Wow. Yeah. All right. Now they go out there, they reclaim what bodies they could, they, they pull the wreckage out and kind of horror of horrors is that they start distributing non-structural pieces of the plane that they were able to salvage and they start using them in other Eastern airlines and other, uh, other planes. Correct. Yes. Do we have an idea, Steve, how many pieces ended up being repurposed and in how many different planes? From what I understand, there was around just over a dozen pieces that were distributed to four different Eastern airline jets. Okay. And within two years time of this tragedy of, of flight 401 spirits start making their presence known how quickly do these stories start populating is it relatively fast after the because I, they've got to take all the pieces first they've got to lay them out in a hangar they've got to go through everything document everything how long before they even started repurposing parts of of the plane back into circulation from what I understand, it was it was significantly less than a year. It was really quickly uh, that they had began to repurpose these parts. And, you know, from what we understand through the research, it was kept pretty hush-hush. I mean, it wasn't, you know, even the pilots were unaware. Only the, you know, kind of the heads-up people at the Corporation of Eastern Airlines would have known about the repurposing and, of course, what jets or what airliners had these parts. And uh, they didn't, uh, they were very upset when people were coming forward uh, saying, hey, th you know, weird things are happening here. They were putting them in the logbooks and, and uh, writing, you know, incident reports, I believe is what they were called. And then the airlines were at first just kind of saying, okay, well, hey, um, it had to be something else. You shouldn't write these kind of reports. Uh, people could uh, perceive you as a, a, a danger to fly these planes. And uh, maybe you should right. see a counselor or a psychologist. So they uh, basically were letting them know, hey, this can cost you your job 
if you continue to write these reports. And some of them, they were brave enough that they were like, hey, no, we're seeing this stuff. Our crew is seeing it and our passengers are seeing this and this must be addressed. So some of them were brave enough to continue forward. Well, that's what I was going to ask. The people that survived this, did they go back into the airline industry? Were they back working as as flight attendants and and engineers and and all of that, or did they? Was that enough for them? Four hundred one, and I'm taking my tie. Survived it. I'm not going back. Surprisingly, a lot of them continued. In fact, we spoke with with a with an individual who I believe went on to fly for over twenty years after that incident. I mean, that's brave. Was it survivors from the flights that began seeing these apparitions first, or were were they people that had nothing to do with that? Uh, people that had nothing to do with that. They they had known these individuals, of course. You know, working with them, they had flown with them before, and and they were seeing the individuals of uh, Bob Larson and and Don Repo, and and you know they knew right away who these people were, and they just couldn't understand how this was possible. Some of them didn't believe in the supernatural, the paranormal. And even so, once they accepted, okay, this is happening, but why? You know, why on this flight? Well, why, you know, is it, we're not flying over the Everglades right now. This isn't flight 401. Why do we keep seeing them? And that's when it was ultimately revealed the parts were repurposed. Now, in the movie, I recall, and I'm wondering how much of this is fact versus fiction, that it seemed that that the engineer, the co-pilot, the, whoever was being seen, always seem to kind of tip off another problem aboard the flight that they made an appearance on. Is that more folklore and legend, or is there something to that? No, there is something to that. Yes, there, there were, uh, you know, warnings, if you will, omens. Um, I believe it was uh, Don Repo uh, had shown himself and had stated that there is going to be a fire on this aircraft, you know, and of course that's, you know, a terrifying thing to experience all the way around. And uh, sure enough, you know, upon some safety inspections and checks, they had found out that there there was uh, something that had malfunctioned and began to burn up. And had he not have said that, and that wasn't something that came to light, um, causing this extensive check, who knows what could have happened. So many people believe that, you know, he was there to uh, stop another major tragedy. So that is actually true. Now there's more than one ghost being seen. How many? Two, three? What are what are the the actual claims? Um, as far as being up in the sky on these planes, there had been three different sightings of, of three different individuals, I should say. Yeah. And were they showing up on a pretty regular basis, or was it always seeming to be really more in times of duress? So, um, kind of on a regular basis. There's a few different things to me that you know really stand out. You know, one of them. There was a, a passenger on a plane. There was nobody seated next to her. And she kind of saw something out of the corner of her eye. And she kind of looks. And then suddenly, boom, there's a man sitting next to her dressed up in, in a pilot's uniform. And she just began screaming hysterically because, well, you know, who wouldn't, I guess, at that case? And other passengers saw it. And, and uh, you know, the, the crew had come out and they had seen it. And this person was so hysterical that when they landed, an ambulance actually had to take her away. That's you know, the trauma from a situation like that. Uh, there was other instances where they would be down in uh, the galley area, you know, working on things or getting things prepared, and they would see an apparition or even a face and a reflection. So, you know, sometimes it was only uh, the employees being, you know, shown this activity, and sometimes mm -hmm. it would everybody on the plane. Um, in fact, one thing that I find really fascinating, and man, I would love to hear it, is that there's a claim that Bob Larson, the pilot, 
had actually shown himself in the cockpit of one of the flights and spoken. Uh, he spoke in the plane and that they see that the recorder and the cockpit actually picked up his voice. So, um, yeah. Wow. And, and that just, there's no chance we're going to ever get a chance to hear any of that archival, even though Eastern's out of business, right? Right. Yeah. If anybody out there has it, it's hard to say, you know, if they'll ever uh, leak that for lack of a better word. Uh, but I, I would love to hear that. Hmm. Yeah, that uh, boy, that, that starts the ghost hunter percolation right of the brain. We got to get got to get that. If anybody out there has any connections and knows how to do this, reach out to Steve and I. We need to hear that piece of audio. Um, boy, that'd be something. But they, so people are hearing that these weird things are taking place. Are are now again the reason I wanted to point out that it wasn't just people that survived the crash, because then it'd be easy enough to put it off as PTSD, survivor guilt other reasons that they might be witnessing this. But as you said, you've got passengers aboard this flight that are laying witness to something that makes no sense to them. That that aspect, and I remember that in the movie, was so powerful. The first flight I took with my dad when I was about 10 years old in uh, was 77, 78, I refused to keep my eyes open in the plane because I was afraid I was going to see a ghost. And I remember that still to, to this day, having that just... I don't want there to be something looking at me through the window or in a reflection. Um, did they eventually taper? Did they did they strip the pieces that had been repurposed off the planes? What can you tell us about the history and future of the uh, the items that had been reused? Sure. So after numerous incident reports uh, came forward, and and this just wouldn't stop, and it was gaining more and more attention, kind of leaking out to the press. Eventually, you know, Eastern Airlines had to understand. In fact, I don't know the gentleman's name. I don't know that it was ever revealed, but supposedly a higher up there, complete skeptic. Eventually, he became a believer because he himself had had an experience on one of these flights. He, you know, he didn't want to really fess up to it at first, but ultimately he did. And he was able to kind of connect the dots and go to some of the higher ups and say, look, these things are only being seen on the planes with the repurposed parts and nobody knew or knows which planes had them, which ones it didn't. You guys can believe what you want to believe at the end of the day. Let's get these parts out. Uh, maybe this will just stop, you know, because the negative press was not doing them any favors. So they were ultimately removed. Nobody knows exactly what happened to them. And then the activity in the skies stopped. Steve, what happened to the rest of the plane? The pieces that weren't repurposed, what did they do with it? Well, you know, we hear a lot of different things. Ultimately, you know, the pieces that were found and, and kind of sorted through were destroyed. However, there are pieces of Flight 401 still out in the Everglades uh, to this day that have completely submerged uh, several parts, actually. Was there any uh, possibility of bringing any of those pieces back up? Well, we definitely looked into it, um, but at the time, we didn't have the amount of time that we wanted to bring a team out there to actually, you know, really use, you know, penetrating radar and other other means. Um, and at the same time, it's almost, do you want to pull it up or maybe it's where it should be now? You know, right. just kind of almost uh, its own gravesite, if you will. So it's kind of kind of hard to say. Do survivors ever go back out to that spot in the Everglades to visit to kind of be a part of that? 
You know, that I'm not sure. Uh, the, the, the individuals that we were lucky enough to speak to that really, you know, helped us with this process, they had never stated that they had gone out there. Um, and I didn't really want to ask. You know, I, I kind of in a roundabout way kind of inquired. But, uh, you know, we were able to meet with some of them uh, toward the end and present them with something kind of special. And, you know, they at least did come to the beginning of the Everglades, so to speak. And But I imagine it'd be pretty difficult for them to go out there. Did you run up against any resistance from survivors or relatives of the lost on on this journey uh, that just weren't did not want to revisit this part of their history, or was it kind of cathartic for them to open up about it again? You know, luckily enough, everybody that we talked <clears throat> to, they were very accepting of the investigation of the documentary, the film. And uh, they agreed to interview with us and either on camera or off camera, sharing their experiences, telling us, you know, what their thoughts were. Um, so we didn't really run into any issues with that. In fact, recently, uh, within the last 48 hours, um, I was contacted by family members of Don Repo. And mm -hmm. uh, that was that was really interesting. They thanked me for for the film and said that they were just kind of all watching it right then and there. So I, you know, maybe they had just heard about it. I'm not sure, but it was really nice to hear from them. Did they let you in on it at all? Did they have any visitations after the death? Um, from what I understand, they did. Um, one of the family members specifically uh, did. So I, you know, I told them I'd love to speak with them and hear more about their story. Uh, very open and willing to tell them about our experiences, you know, that maybe weren't in the investigation, you know, cause you know how it mm -hmm. is so much, you know, so much <laughs> can make it in there, but I'm very eager to speak with them. Do you think you'll revisit this case with maybe the family members with other people to go a little deeper into this? Or do you feel like you've kind of put this story to bed, given it the, the respect that it needs and, and remind people of it already? You know, I, I do think it was very well-rounded. I, I think we did conclude the investigation. Um, myself, personally, I wouldn't mind going back out there at some point and just kind of seeing, you know, how does it feel now? Uh, what, mm -hmm. what, what, what's the difference now being out there on the levee and that kind of thing? And I, I just kind of really felt uh, an attachment, for lack of a better word, to Don Rebo. You know, I just really feel like, you know, he was kind of the, uh, the shepherd of, of those out there and he was still playing that role of protecting those. And, and I'm, I'm hoping he found these. I don't want to give too much away from the documentary because obviously we want people to watch it again. It's available on discovery plus uh, the ghosts of flight 401. Do you believe that you came into contact with Don and with other members of the crew? I definitely do. I definitely feel like I was in, you know, communication and in the presence of Don repo and others. Uh, myself and I, I know Cindy definitely felt the same. Um, I don't think we have any doubt. When you look at the totality of everything that you did for this special and and going in, what was probably the most surprising element of this to you? I would think you know the the way that Eastern Airlines handled their staff. Uh, being upset at them for reporting these incidents uh, that, you know, that, that were happening. Uh, the fact that they repurposed the parts, period, I, I, I think is shocking. Um, I, I don't understand that. And um, I guess, you know, just, just talking to these former employees and knowing that 
they were risking their their livelihood, their careers and everything just for saying what was actually happening. That was a really impactful thing to me. Um, and of course, just, you know, the magnitude of the crash, talking to survivors and, and really getting that firsthand, you know, account of what it was like being on that flight, uh, going through the crash and the aftermath. It was it was deep. That's the only way I can describe it. I mean, it's something that you um, you can't really shake. No, I can't imagine that you could. After doing this documentary, and I know it's been out for a little bit here, I'm curious, uh, has anybody come forward to tell you, you know, off the record that, that this has happened before, that repurposed airplane pieces have been used on other flights and that there are other spirits that are being seen and witnessed elsewhere? You know, there, there were people that did come forward and say, hey, you know, that's don't be so surprised. You know, I was in the airline industry for X, X, Y, Z amount of time and that stuff does happen. And even some of the researchers out there when we were in the field investigating and I was talking to a lot of experts in aviation, they said, you know, it, it happens. It, it really does. It happens quite often. And uh, I guess I just never... Never thought that would happen. Me personally, I think I would uh, imagine being on a plane, Dave, and, and you know, you're up there at 30,000 feet and somebody lets you know, well, hey, you know, there's some repurposed parts here from a really bad plane crash, but they're structurally sound. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. You know? Yeah, no. No, thanks. Mm. Well, it makes you wonder how much of it had been smelted down and might have been used in the building and construction of other planes. You know, unfortunately, like you said, we'll never really know because they don't, they don't come forward with that type of information easily. No. Is there another case that has impacted you? And I know you've you've done a lot with serial killers and and a lot of different hauntings, but is there anything that even comes close to the gravity of this case? No, um, not in not in this case, because it's, you know, there's such an extreme loss of life, you know, 101 souls perished. And, um, you know, and these are innocent victims, you know, that just in a second, they're gone. You know, they they leave from JFK International. It's right after Christmas. They're getting ready for New Year's. Everything is, you know, wonderful. And everything changes, you know, that many people perish. Uh, think of the domino effect of 101 people perishing and all their families and their relatives and it just how that spreads out, you know, and you just really think about the gravity of it. Um, nothing I've done thus far has compared, I guess, to that kind of sorrow. I want to make sure that uh, people can follow you, keep up with where you're going. I know we've got a link for you on today's program guide. Uh, any other Shock docs, any other specials that we should be aware of coming up? How can people find out what you're doing and when they can see you next? Sure. Um, you can just follow me on social media, just Steve Shippy on Facebook, uh, Instagram, all that stuff. And uh, definitely we, we, we do have something very interesting coming out in the same space, something I've uh, worked on for, for many years. I guess uh, that one case that I've spent more time on than anything. So um would love to be able to release more information about that when I can. And hopefully I'll be back here with you when, when that happens. Well, you know, you always have an open invitation here on the paranormal 60 to come back and share with us, Steve. Thank you again for doing this and coming on tonight. I appreciate it. I know our listeners do around the world. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. 
Check it out if you haven't already seen it. Ghosts of Flight 401. I just watched it again tonight before the interview um, to refresh myself on it. It is an amazingly well-done documentary. Again, my sister from another Mr. Cindy Keza is on this uh, special as well with Steve, and they are able to go and do and see some fascinating and remarkable things. So make sure you check that out. We've got uh, more to cover, more Voyages of the Damned. We have a very special element to the show that's going to be coming up in a few minutes with Ray Auger, Jeff Belanger, hosts of New England Legends podcast with a story that will make your blood run cold. It is truly one of the most bizarre and eyewitnessed accounts, a haunted ship and more. When we return to the very best in paranormal podcasting, I'm Dave Schrader, and this is the Paranormal 60. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing that you'd do if, say, you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run, maybe take a nap, read a book, or just show up for a friend? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're like me, you think, I can get through a lot. And we can. We're a resilient species. However, there are times that we need to reach out that hand and get a little help from somewhere else. That's what I did with BetterHelp. When I reached that limit and I realized things were getting a little bit out of control, instead of taking it out on my family or taking it out on myself, I just decided to reach out and get the help that I deserve. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy, my darklings. Get better help. Visit betterhelp.com p60. Do that today. You're going to get 10% off your first month. That's better help h-e-l-p dot com slash p60 it's time to take control of your life dave's here rooting you on and if i can do this you can do this let's do this together betterhelp.com slash p60 there's a link for it on today's program guide hey it's chris jericho here just reminding you about the four leaf clover chris jericho's rock and wrestling rager at sea the fourth voyage leaving february 2nd from Miami to Great Stirrup Key, our very own private island. This is going to be the biggest and best Jericho cruise ever with the biggest lineup, the most fun. I guarantee it. Come join us for the vacation and the party of a lifetime. ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Cabin's still available. I want to see you there. I hope you'll come on out and see me at the Fear Fair. It is the Friday the 13th Musical Festival. It is January 13th through the 15th in Southern California. Oh, it's going to be a party. Concerts, shopping, paranormal chats, haunts and attractions, variety acts, film festivals, special guests like me, and fun, fun, fun. You can get information at thefearfair.com. That's the Fear 
darknessevents.fanfare.com or just go to darknessevents.com to check out more information there. And you'll also find information about Back Behind Bars. Old Joliet State Prison is calling. The ghosts refuse to be silent. They demand to be heard, and we want you to come with us. Shane Pittman and myself from the Holzer Files and Ghosts of Devil's Perch, 28 Days Haunted. We're going to be there. We're going to have an amazing weekend. May 5th and 6th, there are almost no tickets left for the two-day event. So if you want them, you got to get on them now. We have one-day tickets. You can get one-day tickets for Friday and Friday night or Saturday and Saturday night. Those are also going very fast. We would love for you to be a part of it, so make sure you check that out. Come see us. Get information at darknessevents.com. And don't forget, you can also follow me and take me along on the road with the Paranormal 60 however you listen to your podcasts, whether it is through iTunes or Deezer, iHeartRadio. Did you know I'm part of Audible? That's right. If you are an Audible addict like I am, you can catch the Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader on Audible and on Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, it's all there. So make sure that you take the podcast on the road. It'll help you fill those long drives to work and home and on those holiday weekends where you need a little pick-me-up to get you back engaged and re-entertained. So check it out, The Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader. Hey, that's me. Tomorrow, big birthday, guys. I'm going to turn 55 years old. No, that's not why I shaved my goatee, for those of you watching, trying to grasp that last bastion of youth, hoping that getting rid of the gray mange would make me look younger. I'm not that vain. All right, I'm, I'm kind of that vain. I wanted to see if I'd look younger <laughs> instead of looking like Santa Claus's little brother, Larry. Uh, so I will be growing it back, so panic not, my friends. Uh, I just wanted to let you know so that you're not thinking things are crazy. But how about tomorrow on my birthday, you join me right here for a special episode. So for those of you listening to the audio podcast, you can join me live on November 22nd on the show for one hour. And if you'd like to be a part of the show between 9 p.m., 10 p.m. Central, that's 7 to 8 p.m. Pacific, 8 to 9 p.m. Mountain, 9 to 10 p.m. Central, or 10 to 11 Eastern, Email me, Dave, at Paranormal60.com. That's Dave at Paranormal60.com. I will send you a link, and you can join me right here on the program. Share your creepy stories, your weird aspects of the paranormal, whether it's been an angelic encounter, miracles, mysteries, ghosts. Maybe you've been on a haunted plane or a haunted ship. I want to hear your story. So make sure that you reach out. Just email me, Dave, at Paranormal60.com, and I'd love for all of you to engage tomorrow and be here with me. We're going to have a great time. We'll be celebrating my birthday. What an amazing time and an amazing way to do that. So I hope that you'll consider joining me right here on the program uh, as we do this. I had to stop there for a second for those of you watching because out of the corner of my eye, I just saw a head duck around my office wall, and there is nobody there. Maybe my mom checking in on me. I don't know. Could be the Schrader family spirits coming out to celebrate with me as well. We just don't know who's going to be here. So make sure you tune in tomorrow and be a part of the program with me. Again, just send me an email, dave at paranormal60.com. I'll send you a link. You can join me on the stream yard. And if it's busy when you try, just keep watching. And when I let go of one person, 
punch that button and get back in and you can join me to share your stories, questions, thoughts, concerns, whatever you'd like to discuss. I've got something really cool that we're about to do. You know that one of my best friends in the world, Jeff Belanger, well, I've had him on the show so many times, he has great stories to share. And I said, you know, Jeff, you do these New England Legends podcasts and they're great. They're as short as seven minutes, some up to 20, 25 minutes in length, some a little longer. And I said, but you just told a story on episode 274, a ship crewed by the damned. And I want to share that story. Can I share your podcast with you and Ray Auger on my program? Let people hear how amazing it is. And he said, of course, Dave, it's your 55th birthday. Who am I to say no? Well, they would have been Jeff Belanger, but that wouldn't have been like him. So in New England Legends, in episode 274, Jeff Belanger and Ray Auger sail out of Gloucester Harbor in Massachusetts aboard the fishing schooner Charles Haskell. In March of 1869, the Haskell was fishing on George's bank when a perfect storm knocked her into another vessel, sinking the other ship, damning her crew. The ghosts of the sunken crew came back. You've got to hear this story to believe it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is New England Legends with Ray Auger and Jeff Belanger. Whenever we're in Gloucester Harbor, I can't help but think of the movie The Perfect Storm, the one that came out back in 2000. Yeah, I completely understand that. That story depicted the loss of the fishing vessel, the Andrea Gale, back in October of 1991. And seeing these fishing boats today pulling in and out of the harbor and looking at the clouds in the sky, I mean, you can't help but wonder. The seas will turn angry today. The Andrea Gale story reminds us that the sea can still be a dangerous place for a boat, even in these modern times with radar, sonar, radios, advanced weather reporting, and so on. Sure, yeah, definitely. Accidents still happen, and sea captains sometimes push their luck. They take risks with their ships and crew. So today's story must be about a boat. That's exactly why we're here, Ray. We're in Gloucester Harbor in Massachusetts looking for a ship that was once crewed by ghosts. Hello, I'm Jeff Belanger, and welcome to episode 274 of the New England Legends podcast. And I'm Ray Osher. Thanks for joining us on our mission to chronicle every legend in New England one story at a time. Did you know most of our story leads come from you? Well, this one did. Thanks to Matt Morish for emailing us about this story. We're grateful when you get involved. It takes a community to keep these stories coming week after week. The sea by the shores of Gloucester seems pretty calm today. Sure, but we know that can change in an instant. Yeah, absolutely it can. Even well-seasoned captains and crews can get caught off guard. And before we jump into this week's adventure, I thought we should take a short walk over to the south side of Stacy Boulevard to the edge of the harbor and check out the Fisherman's Memorial. I've seen pictures of this statue before, and it's featured on the TV show Bewitched. Oh, sure. There's a fisherman holding a ship's wheel. He's wearing a hat and rain gear. Inscribed below the statue, it reads, They that go down to sea in ships, 1623 to 1923. Right. The statue was placed here in 1923. Obviously, there's been another almost century of history since then, which includes more accidents and more losses of life. Now, I'm reading some of the statistics on Gloucester. Man, this is staggering. So over 5,000 people have been lost to sea from ships hailing from Gloucester Harbor between 1860 
1906, 660 ships sank. Wow. And a single storm in 1862 claimed 15 schooners and 120 men. The city of Gloucester commemorates all of these losses with the memorial here. Plus, they keep a running tally on their website that lists all of the information known about the sailors and the ships. The Andrea Gale is on that list, of course. Over 5,000 people lost. I feel like every one of them could be a story. There's no doubt about that. Included on this list of those lost are nine schooners who were all lost in the same incident back in 1869. So let's head back there and take a sail on a schooner named Charles Haskell. It's early March of 1869, and the schooner Charles Haskell is making its second voyage ever out of her home port of Gloucester Harbor. The Haskell is a fishing vessel heading for the bountiful waters of George's Banks under the direction of Captain Clifford Curtis. Fishermen can be a superstitious bunch. As they set sail, maybe somewhere in the back of their minds of the crew of the Charles Haskell is the story of their ship being cursed. Cursed? Already? It's only been a few months. <laughs> yeah, well, if not cursed, then maybe born under a bad sign. Mm. Uh, during the ship's final inspection, after construction was complete, a workman slipped on the deck, fell, and broke his neck. An event like that spooked some crews who refused to work on her. Yikes. But when the seas are calm and the winds are good, it's easy to put thoughts of curses out of your mind. Sure. Plus, George's Bank is producing. Fishing schooners are quickly filling up with fish. It's March 6th when the Charles Haskell reaches George's Bank to start fishing. The wind is blowing from the east-northeast, and the schooner drops her anchor. And before the anchor touches the bottom, the fishermen have already landed two codfish. While that sounds promising, the fishermen are a little unnerved, because when the fish bite before the anchor hits bottom, some say it's a bad omen and means there's going to be a gale today. The Haskell isn't the only ship to know these are prime fishing grounds. As we look out on the horizon, I can see dozens of other schooners all after the same thing. The ships are spread out, but there's more than you can count. Still, fish after fish are coming out of the sea and filling the hold of the Charles Haskell. It's a good day for fishing, which is keeping the crew's minds off the fact that the sea swells are growing larger as the afternoon wears on. And the wind is picking up too. The captain orders the foresail to be reefed which means that the sail can be hoisted at any moment's notice should the ship go adrift in the oncoming storm. The biggest threat in these waters isn't so much going adrift, but the dozens of other ships nearby. If one ship is tossed into another, it's curtains for both boats. It's 9 p.m. The Charles Haskell is dealing with hurricane force winds. Sleet is pelting the crew like tiny rocks. Some of the schooners are starting to drift. Their anchors aren't holding them in place, and to make things worse, when one schooner sees another drifting toward them, they're obligated to cut their anchor line so they can get out of the way. Two drifting ships quickly becomes four, and so on. All hands are on deck aboard the Haskell. There will be no sleep tonight. They're in the teeth of a mighty storm. Their only chance is to ride this out. The Haskell's crew keep their signal lights lit so other ships can see them. And now the Haskell's anchor is dragging. It's 10 p.m when the anchor snags something on the bottom and sends the bow of the ship high into the air. Suddenly, signal lights from another ship appear dangerously close. The rolling waves are tossing these boats like toys. Captain Curtis yells out, hard up, ordering the helm to steer hard to try to evade a collision. But in the fierce storm, no one could see that the oncoming ship was under sail trying to maneuver. A wave suddenly sends the Haskell towering up just as the other vessel dips down into the trough of the wave. 
Everyone on board the Haskell holds their breath, waiting to learn their fate. When... The Haskell drops down almost on top of the other vessel, slicing her in two. Though there's yelling aboard the other ship, no words can be heard over the raging storm. The crew of the Haskell can only watch in horror as the other ship and crew are dragged under the inky black and foaming waters. Plus, the crew of the Haskell still doesn't know their own fate. Two of the Haskell's crew, George Scott and John Winters, rush below deck to see if their hull has been crushed in during the collision. If it has, then it would only be a matter of minutes before they join the fate of the crew of the other ship below. The men see no sign of water below deck. They even rip up some of the floorboards of the forecastle's floor to see if there was damage, but there's none. The Charles Haskell was well built. When she dropped down on the other ship, her bow acted like an axe and sliced the other ship in two. No one had ever heard of such a collision that didn't doom both ships. Though the Haskell isn't leaking, she's not out of the woods by a long shot. The main boom and the rigging on the starboard side of the ship has been ripped off the ship by the wind. Some of the loose rigging is knocking into the hull of the ship and threatening to create a break that could sink the ship. Under the power of two sails, the Haskell plods on until dawn when the storm finally passes. The crew are exhausted, and with so little sail, it takes her a week to limp back to Gloucester. Nine vessels went down in George's banks during this horrific storm, and 90 men were lost. The schooners A.E. Price, the Andrew Johnson of Salem, and the Martha A. Porter were three ships lost that night. Which one was taken down by the Haskell was a mystery for the moment. The Charles Haskell is soon repaired and ready for sea once again, but her reputation among the rest of the fleet is dark. There's a cloud over the Haskell. A few weeks after repairs, the Charles Haskell is back on George's bank fishing once again. This time, the seas are much calmer, but the fishing is still quite good. By the end of the day, the ship's hold is on its way to filling up with cod. The crew turns in for the night, ready to fish again in the morning. It's midnight. It's quiet. The night watchman is at his position on the deck scanning the ocean, but not too concerned given the calm seas, when suddenly he sees some glowing apparitions of fishermen walking on the ocean. They're walking right toward the bow of the Charles Haskell. Oh man, one of the ghosts just climbed over the bow of the ship. Uh, and, and look, there's another one doing the same thing. The night watchman can only watch and question his senses. The ghosts make no sound. They file over the bow of the boat. This is incredible. The ghosts look like they're taking up positions on the Haskell. That man over there looks like he's tending to the sails. There's another over there that looks like he's opening up the fishing bait. That ghostly man is standing behind the helm. And more of the ghostly men look like they're hauling in fish. This is the eeriest sight I've ever seen. This is so spooky. The night watchman is running below deck to rouse the others. Pretty soon, the entire crew of the Haskell is witnessing this ghostly crew tending to their duties. After a few minutes, the ghostly crew and their skipper dissipate into the night. It's midnight the following night, when once again the ghostly crew of the damned boards the Haskell to tend to their fishing duties. But the crew of the Haskell wants nothing more to do with this ghostly business. They demand the skipper point the bow toward Gloucester right away. The captain agrees, and home they head. The Haskell's crew are petrified. What if the ghostly crew takes over the Haskell and claims it for themselves? What if they're thrown overboard by the spirits? Would the Haskell become some kind of New England version of the Flying Dutchman? 
even under full sail towards home, the ghostly crew continues tending to their former duties. All night they sail with the ghost crew. The Haskell passes Thatcher's Lighthouse and then Eastern Point. And just as the Haskell is approaching Gloucester's Harbor, the ghostly crew begins to shake their head in protest. They don't want to lower the sails. But the skipper of the Haskell demands his crew to take the sail in as they approach the docks. Look at the ghostly crew. Their, their shoulders are slumped. Yeah. They're walking towards the bow of the Haskell and climbing over the side and heading back into the ocean. Oh, look at that. They're, they're heading southwest in the water, away from the boat. That's, that's the direction of Salem. And that brings us back to today. Because the ghostly crew seemed bound for Salem, that convinced the crew of the Charles Haskell that the unknown ship cut in two during the storm must have been the Andrew Johnson out of Salem. After the Charles Haskell made port again in Gloucester, the tales of the ghostly crew boarding the Haskell made it all around town pretty quick. Soon, no one wanted to work on the ship. No skipper wanted anything to do with it. So the Charles Haskell was sold to a company in Nova Scotia. No one ever heard if the ghostly crew of the damned still boarded the cursed ship. Most of what we know about this story comes from a March 7th, 1899 Boston Globe article that covered the 30-year anniversary of the storm and disaster at sea, leading to the haunting of the Charles Haskell. And we know from this memorial in Gloucester today, and from the running tally of lives lost kept by the town, that the sea is still incredibly dangerous. Fishing vessels are still lost at sea, and people die in these waters. The Charles Haskell wasn't the first, and it won't be the last. Very cool. That is Ray Auger, Jeff Belanger, New England Legends podcast. There's a link for it on today's program guide. Subscribe, go, listen, check it out. 275 episodes. So there's a lot for you to dig into. And But Dave, I'm not from New England. What do I care about those stories? They are amazingly well-written, fantastic shares. You're going to love them. And a lot of creepy, weird stuff that you're missing out on and a lot of fun stuff, too. So make sure you go check that out and support my buddy Jeff Belanger and Ray Auger with their fantastic podcast. And thank you, gentlemen, for allowing us to share that with our listeners worldwide. All right. We talked about the Voyages of the Damned. This one has always been a part of my world. Going to Alabama every year to celebrate my birthday and Thanksgiving, this was an important part of the year for me. And part of what I loved doing was going down there because my, my dad's parents believed in the paranormal. That's where I had my Bigfoot sighting, Foley, Alabama. They saw craft hover over their property on numerous occasions and believed in different aspects of the supernatural. And one thing that my grandmother believed in almost to a panicked OCD way was the stories of the Bermuda Triangle. And I remember watching in search of at her house when they talked about the case of Flight 19. Let's talk about that now. See, it began as nothing more than just a routine training flight. At 2.10 p.m. on December 5th, 1945, five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers took off from a naval air station in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The planes, collectively known as Flight 19, were scheduled to tackle a three-hour exercise known as Navigation Problem Number 1. 
Their triangular flight plan called for them to head east from the Florida coast and conduct bombing runs at a place called Hens and Chicken Shoals. They would then turn north and proceed over Grand Bahama Island before changing course a third time and flying southwest back to base. Save for one plane that only carried two men, each of the Avengers was crewed by three Navy men or Marines, most of whom had logged around 300, uh, 300 hours rather in the air. The flight's leader was Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor, an experienced pilot and veteran of several combat missions in World War II's Pacific Theater. At first, Flight 19's hop proceeded just as smoothly as the previous 18 that day. Taylor and his pilots buzzed over hens and chicken shoals around 2.30 p.m. and dropped their practice bombs without incident. But shortly after the patrol turned north, for the second leg of its journey, something very strange happened. For reasons that are still unclear, Taylor became convinced that his Avengers compass was malfunctioning and that his planes had been flying in the wrong direction. The troubles only mounted after a front blew in and, and brought rain, gusting winds, and heavy cloud cover. Flight 19 became hopelessly disoriented. I don't know where we are, one of the pilots said over the radio. We must have gotten lost after our last turn. Lieutenant Robert F. Cox, another Navy flight instructor who was flying near the Florida coast, was the first to overhear the patrol's radio communications. He immediately informed the air station of the situation and then contacted the Avengers to ask if they needed assistance. Both my compasses are out, and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Taylor said, his voice sounding anxious. I'm, I'm over land, but it's broken. I'm, I'm sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down. Taylor's claim didn't seem to make sense. He'd made his scheduled pass over hens and chicken shoals in the Bahamas less than an hour earlier, but he now believed his planes had somehow drifted hundreds of miles off course and ended up in the Florida Keys. The 27-year-old had transferred to Fort Lauderdale from Miami, and many have since speculated that he may have confused some of the islands of the Bahamas for those of the Keys. Under normal circumstances, pilots lost in the Atlantic were supposed to point their planes towards the setting sun and fly west toward the mainland. But Taylor had become convinced that he might be over the Gulf of Mexico. Hoping to locate the Florida Peninsula, he made a fateful decision to steer Flight 19 northeast, a course that would only take them even farther out to sea. Some of his pilots seemed to have recognized that he was making a mistake. Damn it, one of the men griped over the radio. If we would just fly west, we could get home. Taylor was eventually persuaded to turn around and head west, but shortly after 6 p.m., he seems to have canceled the order and once again changed direction. We didn't we didn't go far enough east, he said, still worried that he might be in the Gulf. We may as well just turn around and go east again. His pilots probably argued against that decision. Some investigators even believe that one plane broke off and flew in a different direction altogether. But most followed their commander's lead. Flight 19's radio transmissions soon became increasingly faint as it meandered out to sea when fuel began to run low. 
Taylor was heard prepping his men for a potential crash landing in the ocean. All planes close up tight, he said. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. A few minutes later, the Avengers' last radio communications were replaced by an eerie buzz of static. The Navy immediately scrambled search planes to hunt for the missing patrol. And at around 7.30 p.m., a pair of PBM Mariner flying boats took off from an air station north of Fort Lauderdale. Just 20 minutes later, however, one of them seemed to follow Flight 19's lead by suddenly vanishing off the radar. The remains of this Mariner and its 13 crewmen have never been recovered. At first light the next day, the Navy dispatched more than 300 boats and aircraft to look for Flight 19 and the missing Mariner. The search party spent five days combing through more than 300,000 square miles of territory to no avail. These planes just vanished. Navy Lieutenant David White later recalled, we had hundreds of planes out looking and we searched over land and water for days. Nobody ever found the bodies or any of the debris. A Navy board of investigation was also left scratching its head. While it argued that Taylor might have confused the Bahamas for the Florida Keys after his compass malfunction, it could find no clear explanation for why Flight 19 had become so disoriented. Its members eventually attributed the loss to causes of reasons unknown. The strange events surrounding December 5th, 1945, have since become fodder for all manner of wild theories and speculations. And of course, in the 1960s and 70s, pulp magazines and writers such as Vincent Gaddis and Charles Berlitz helped popularize the idea that Flight 19 had been gobbled up by the Bermuda Triangle, a section of the Atlantic supposedly known for its high volume of freak disappearances and mechanical failures. Other books and fictional portrayals have suggested magnetic anomalies, parallel dimensions, and even alien abductions might have played a role in the tragedy. And in 1977, the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind famously depicted Flight 19 as having been whisked away by flying saucers, only to be later deposited in the deserts of Mexico. Even if the Lost Patrol didn't fall victim to the supernatural, there's no denying that its disappearance was accompanied by many oddities and unanswered questions. Perhaps the strangest of all concerns Lieutenant Taylor. Witnesses later claimed that he arrived to Flight 19's pre-exercise briefing several minutes late and requested to be excused from leading the mission. I, I just don't want to take this one out, he supposedly said. Just why Taylor tried to get out of flying still remains a mystery, but it has led many to suggest that he may have not been fit for duty. Also unexplained is why none of the members of Flight 19 made use of the rescue radio frequency on their planes, ZBX receivers, which could have helped them lead toward a Navy radio tower somewhere on land. The pilots were told to switch the devices on, but they either didn't hear the message or didn't acknowledge it. Many believe that the wrecks of Flight 19 and its doomed rescue planes may still lurk somewhere 
in the Bermuda Triangle. But while the search continues to this day, there are no signs of the six aircraft or their 27 crewmen that have ever been found. That to me is one of the most weird and chilling tales. The concept that these professionals, these pilots who knew what they were doing could just vanish. I wanted to talk to somebody that I trust, that I know that could maybe give us a little insight on this and who actually studied this case while in the military. Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome to tonight's program, the paranormal detective himself, Greg Lawson. Hey, Greg. Hey, Dave. Good to be here, man. Thanks for coming on tonight and doing this. Um, so Flight 19. Yeah. Bermuda Triangle? Yeah. Alien abduction? Yeah. Or just poorly planned flight plan that yeah, uh, the storm blew you know, off course? Then there's that. Then there's that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. So I was an operations specialist in the Navy, and uh, part of that training is going through Navigation Laboratory, and it's about, uh, it's about three weeks long, um, a lot of math. And, uh, one of the case studies that we did was flight. What was this particular flight? And this is an absolutely fascinating flight because you have a lot of things that could go wrong in it. When, when they were doing this, the idea was shutting off. Like you were saying that what, what is used now as a tack can on how to get back someplace, uh, they were shutting off their uh, their radio signals to where they could triangulate their actual position. So they shut those off. They were going off a compass and they were doing dead reckoning. So you're just setting your compass on a particular course going that way for a certain amount of time based on the speed of your aircraft and then changing there. And lots of stuff can go wrong with that. So it's very interesting. Right. But the fact that they were, many of them reported that they were having magnetic issues that they're, right. that they're, uh, compasses were going out of control, um, yeah. that they were many of them feeling disoriented. Now that's not that hard to believe, right? I mean, we talked about not it all. in the first case tonight with yeah. flight 401. We take it for granted. They're looking out a window. They can see we're not on a, a road that, mm -hmm. that is clearly lit. We're, we're going by feel and compasses and, and speeds and, and all of this to, to, guesstimate really where we're at right and how we're getting there yep um so it, it is conceivable that it was just a poor choice now what i always struggled with on this though is that you've got not just one guy making a bad choice but that there's an entire fleet following him questioning him thinking maybe he may not be fit for this but they don't break formation they don't go away right. they continue to follow him to their death yeah why is that i mean following orders some, man that's it <laughs> yeah really yeah, yeah follow yeah. orders yeah well um up until probably uh um eh, i mean there's always been those those individuals that didn't want to follow orders but it wasn't a popular thing uh, mm -hmm. like it became a little later in the vietnam war and then now where there's uh, uh you know skippers are questioned constantly on what they're doing and 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 get fired very easily for the the smallest little uh mistake that they make and um you're in training you have 300 hours of stick time on one of these planes your um your training officer your instructor has 2500 hours uh, he has combat missions i think he was on the uh, USS Hancock, uh, the uh, aircraft carrier in the Pacific, uh, and and he has a lot of experience, and he's been hired too. 
actually teach at this school. So, you know, there's a high level of competency that's required. However, mm-hmm. uh, he was also known as a little bit of a drinker. And uh, so, you know, could, could he have uh, had a little tied one on the, the night before a little bit too much? Or could he have had a little bit of PTSD or something else going on with him? And he tried to um, kind of get himself out of, of that situation uh, by lightly saying, hey, I am, uh, I am a little bit out of sorts. I'd rather not lead this mission. But once again, you do something like that and can seriously adverse your, your career. Hmm. So, you know. We know that there are a lot of interesting claims from very reputable people that have crossed through the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, seasoned right. sailors, uh, aircraft personnel, um, that, that cannot explain the strange anomalous behavior inside that, which is no longer really a triangle. It's more kind of like a weird polygon, right? <laughs> it's a weird shape, <laughs> yeah. that, this amorphous shape that's out there, but there, it's also really hard to deny Greg that there's a lot of craft that yeah. have just straight up gone missing. Yeah, you, in that you, area. You, you look at that area. There's a lot of air traffic. There's a lot of uh, sea traffic, uh, more than in, in some other areas. So statistically, it would go up, right? Mm-hmm. But you, you know that that constant um, people reporting their instruments acting strangely, right? Um, we know now that our uh, our compasses in 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 the magnetism of the earth changes from time to time a little bit. And mm-hmm. also we know from going inside ships, you, you take a, a compass with you inside of a metal box inside of a ship, that compass can kind of get, can get confused because well, what a lot of people don't understand is that it doesn't point directly at the North pole. It, it points at a very large iron deposit up in Canada. And that's what it's working off of. So depending on where you are on the earth, the more your compass is a little bit off and, and you have to do the math to get it back on exactly where you want it. So mm. uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things that can go bad. You're when you're up in like Alaska, the declination is, is in like 20 or 30 degrees. I can't remember what it is. It's very high. So whatever you're doing your math, you have to then subtract or add uh 20 something degrees onto that to navigate. Uh, and that can lead you badly. I I, I was in a, a a group. We were resupplying uh, some other soldiers, and we were using snowmobiles, snow machines to do this. We went to one village. Uh, we we picked up a bunch of uh, uh, sea rations and some other food and water and stuff like that. And my lieutenant uh, did not do a back azimuth to get us back where he was. He used his compass course that he he used to get to where we were to continue. And we mm-hmm. argued with him and he did not like that at all and straightened us, you know, right up. And we followed him for about 10 miles and we were out on the Bering Sea. <laughs> and he finally realized that we were on ice flow and mm-hmm. then did his, his uh, a reciprocal bearing, turned us back around, did his declination and we got back close to where we were. Uh, but, you know, the dude in charge has to get it right. And he also has to understand that he's fallible and listen to his troops. So is it true that you then ate him that night? 
We were going to. We would have. Oh, I would have eaten him. Yeah, yeah. He had um, <laughs> strong legs. That thigh, man. You Beefy slice that meat, thing. Yeah. yeah, slice it real thin. Put a little butter right. in it. But you've got six Avenger planes that go out there. Yeah. They leave no debris, no oil slick, no bodies that have floated to the surface. Odd. Considering these are guys that know what to do and at least jettison themselves, their packs, something's going to make them float. Nothing. And that a second craft goes out looking for them, vanishes within 20 minutes, completely off yep. radar, gone. There's no debris. There's no oil slick. There's no 13 bodies floating in the water. Greg, this seems like a lot more of a mystery than it does just fallible humans and planes, doesn't it? Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, when you look at the absence of the evidence of uh, aircraft going down, it's very bizarre. Um, it w with the uh, with the torpedo bomb with the Avenger planes, uh, very smaller. The guys are strapped in. Um, Maybe uh, if they were all going down together, whoever was leading them down had uh, a little bit too much pitch going on and they mm -hmm. impacted the water uh, too hard and they didn't get out of the planes and the plane sank. Uh, and then there was no floatsome. There was, there was nothing coming out of the plane that would um, indicate where it is like uh, pieces of uh, foam from the seats, uh, you know, papers, what, whatever might float. Uh, but yeah, the uh, the search plane that had thirteen individuals on it. Um, those things were. And if you ever go to a museum and check them, imagine hitting the water in that thing at about a hundred miles an hour, uh, a little too far pitched down. That thing's going to come apart like a beer can. Um, there should be some fuel. There should, like you said, oil, fuel, um, some some papers, something. But you know, when you're looking at the, at, at the the current coming up out of the Caribbean right there that goes along the East coast and, and makes its way up the Atlantic. Um, you know, depending on what time of the year we're, we're talking the next day, it would be, uh, you know, hours worth of, of movement. If the, if the current is at eight knots or something like that. Right. But they flew over hundreds of miles, right. square miles of multiple airplane boat deployment. There's nothing. Very Nothing. weird stuff. Very These strange. are the voyages of the damned. Greg, thanks for coming on tonight and spending a little time here with me. Glad to do it, my friend. Thank you so much. Make sure you tune in tomorrow. I've got a creepy story to share regarding the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, for my birthday, we'll be here for the 55th. I want to hear from you. If you'd like me to send you a link so you can be a part of tomorrow's show, just email me, dave at paranormal60.com. That's Dave at Paranormal60.com. If you're listening to tonight's program and you want to join me live tomorrow, do the same thing, and I will send it to you. Just to go over the times again, it is 7 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, 10 p.m. Eastern, one hour to share your stories, your questions, and we'll have a lot of fun. And uh, let's keep the happy birthdays to a quick deal and then get right into the stories. So let's do that tomorrow. We're going to have a lot of fun, and I, uh, I look forward to spending that time with you all. Whatever your beliefs are, we are surrounded in mystery. On ground, in the sky, and on the sea. These mysteries are part of what drive us to continue to explore uncharted regions, to send us to the stars and back. 
Where will the next great voyage of the damned come from? Well, when we uncover it, we'll be sure to report it right here on The Best in Paranormal Programming. I'm Dave Schrader, and this is the Paranormal 60. Thank you all for visiting with me this evening and taking me along on your journey. And thank you to my good friend Jeff Belanger and Ray Auger and Steve Shippey for coming in and enlightening us up to some of the weird stories that are out there. To the paranormal detective Greg Lawson for giving us some perspective to these tales. And thank you, Greg, for your service to our country. We appreciate that. May the darkness just be a little bit more light with the information that we shared here tonight. And may your journeys always be true. May you find your way to where you're going and back again, safely and with stories of wonder and amazement. We'll be back tomorrow night with my 55th birthday celebration and your stories of the supernatural. We'll be back Friday with a live supernatural news edition right here on the Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader. (laughs) 